Okay, We're, I'm just going to kind of wrap things up with the, the, the main message of the Old Testament, which is the, uh, very consistent with the main message that God has for us. And this way we can kind of pull everything together. We've covered a lot of history, a lot of detail, a lot of characters, but let's look at the broad overarching um, themes and broad brush strokes of what has happened here in the Old Testament. Okay? Um, of course, the Old Testament begins, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created, created the heaven and the earth, and he created this as the home of the crown of his creation, those created in his image, human beings. And his very act of creation is an act of grace. Okay? He didn't have to create us, but he created us, and he created us in his image, uh, that he might be in relationship with those he created, the crown of his creation. And so we see God um, uh, communing with Adam and Eve in the garden, providing them with all that they need of any tree of the garden you may freely eat. Okay? Providing them with a paradise in which to live and in which to commune with him. And also giving them a task given them a purpose, responsibility of, of caring for the creation, of, of ruling over it as stewards of God, okay? And of multiplying and filling the creation. And so God also gave them responsibilities. Um, however, there was, a, uh, with those responsibilities, also a response, human response that was expected. And that response is essentially faith of dependence upon God as the provider, as the creator, as the one who uh, um, brings his gifts of life. And simply to depend upon what he provides in faith. And then the product of that faith would be obedience to his will. Uh, always uh, uh, obedience is a result of faith. It's the fruit of faith, as we say. And so to live according to God's will. And God's will was very clear in the garden, okay? To uh, uh, be fruitful, multiply, to uh, be the stewards of the earth, uh, stewards of the created order here, uh, rule over it in the stead of God and on behalf of God. And also, uh, there was the prohibition of any tree you may freely eat of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, because when you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so there was that prescription, that prohibition. And as long as they would uh, um, uh, obey that, then they would be living out um, God's will and faith in him. But of course... Uh, the human response eventually was that of sin. And that sin was essentially unbelief, okay, of not trusting God, of succumbing to the deception of the serpent. Did God really say, questioning him, not believing in him, and then declaring independence? Well, actually, you can become your own gods, 
okay? You don't need to have God over you. You can become your own God. And so Adam and Eve uh, uh, declared their independence from God by disobeying him and thus rebelling against his will. And that was the first sin. And sin always brings then God's judgment. The judgment of the curse that befell all of creation. The curse upon the ground and all of creation now, which once was declared by God to be very good, is marred. There's death. There's decay. There's destruction. There's hatred. There's murder. And uh, so God's judgment now comes and there is the curse upon all of creation as a result of this rebellion, this unbelief. And the, the final judgment is that of death. Not just physical death, but separation from God into eternity. But um, God also holds forth for those who respond to his judgment in repentance, um, also his grace once again and his provision. And so for Adam and Eve, although in this case we don't uh, hear of their repentance, in this way God was just marvelously gracious. He could have destroyed them right there. He could have um, um, uh, cast them out from his presence. But instead he provided them with another promise, a promise of life. And so uh, Eve's name was given to her by Adam as the mother of the living. The uh, provision for ongoing life, God clothed them, covered their nakedness, and then also promised them a deliverer, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and uh, ultimately reverse the curse of sin, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. And so this is the cycle that we, we see over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Okay, we saw that cycle going through you know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis of sin, judgment, and grace. And uh, it, it always then um, is, is God's grace that, that then calls for the human response of faith. So you've got sola gratia, God's grace alone, but then also sola fide, faith alone. And that faith then is lived out in obedience to God's will. So, but uh, um, in the succeeding generations after Adam, uh, you have the line of Cain, which essentially uh, goes against God in unbelief, uh, goes away from the presence of the Lord. But you have the line of Seth, the third son, uh, where People do call upon the name of the Lord, and they do so in faith. Uh, unfortunately, ultimately, there is intermarriage. There is communion between the two, and uh, the righteous are more influenced by the unrighteous than the unrighteous by the, the righteous. And uh, by chapter 7, you have the world uh, filled with people who are, once again, in unbelief, in rebellion against God. And so God declares that he will wipe humanity off the face of the earth. And yet there is still one man 
and his family who are repentant, not perfect. Described, Noah is described as righteous, uh, but Noah certainly is a sinner. We see that in the narrative, uh, both before and after the flood here. But he is a man who still is repentant and in faith in God. And so God's provision, God's grace is for him and his family delivered from the judgment of the flood. Uh, after the flood, his sons, Ham, Japheth, and Shem, uh, they populate, they and their wives then populate the earth. Uh, but by chapter 11, we see that, uh, again, uh, most people have fallen away from the Lord. Uh, they declare their independence and rebel against God's word, which is kind of epitomized in the Tower of Babel, uh, the, the attempt to make a name for themselves, essentially be their own gods and storm heaven itself um, by their uh, tower. And so God's judgment befalls them once again. And yet God continues to be gracious and provides. And he calls one man and his wife out of idolatry in Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia, Abram. Okay. He calls him, and he, in a sense, seeks to begin again with a new race, uh, descendants of Abraham, uh, whereas earlier he destroyed the whole race and started over again with Noah and his family. In this case, he will not destroy the whole race. That was the covenant that he made after the flood uh, with, with water, but now... Uh, he will start again, and within the population, he focuses on one family, one nation, one people, the descendants of Abraham. And this will be the way in which God gains a foothold in humanity and in the world in order that he might transform the whole, transform all of humanity bring blessing to all the nations, and transform the whole world. And he starts now with this one family. Starts very small, but the family grows and grows and grows, and is intended to be a positive influence upon the world, to be the reflection of God's will in the world. And so this family is the family that is to bear witness to the life of faith, of dependence upon Yahweh rather than that of unbelief and independence. This is the family then that is to reflect the life of obedience, which is the fruit of faith, living out God's will, not disobedience, rebellion against God's will, which is par for the course in the rest of the world. And uh, so they are to be the light to the nations, to be the priests of Yahweh to the nations, a kingdom of priests. And, um, and so now God has this foothold in Palestine, which is the crosswords, crossroads of, of civilization. And it's kind of a beachhead uh, of land and of people. Now, so that he might begin his invasion, the kingdom of God, in 
the whole world and among all the nations. And this place of Palestine then is intended to be a kind of training camp for these people, a training camp for uh, the called people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. But the training camp will not be such to teach them self-sufficiency, like a typical boot camp, or their own survival skills, but rather dependence upon God, faith upon him, just as it had been originally in Eden. And so God takes his people to Egypt. He sets it up. This wasn't just a um, uh, chance fluke in history, but God is the one who made it happen. He took his people to Egypt, where they endured 400 years, uh, many of which under oppression and slavery. And there they became totally dependent. Uh, they could not rescue themselves. They could not deliver themselves. They became totally dependent and helpless. Only God could deliver them. And he, in fact, does that, delivers them, and then takes them into Sinai, where he delivers the law to them, into the desert, a place where they cannot survive on their own. He's the one who provides. And he then sustains them, again, teaching them dependence and faith upon him. And at Sinai then, um, he provides for them most clearly what his will is. That's called the law, identifying what his will would be so that they might live in faith and respond in obedience to his will so that they might be that witness to the nations and a blessing to the nations as they are blessed. He then moves them into the promised land, what we call the conquest, and that's clearly Yahweh's battle. It's not by their own strength, not by their own might. Just as in Egypt, they don't, they, uh, they don't win the battle against the oppressive nation of Egypt. Yahweh wins that, that battle, so now in the conquest as well. And as long as they are dependent upon him, then there is success. But when they begin to uh, disobey him, then there is death and punishment and a curse. And so we see then in the conquest and the period of the judges as well, the same kind of cycle going through, um, uh, that God has provided the land here as a gift. He owns it. And uh, as long as the people respond in faith and obedience, uh, they can dwell in that inheritance. But when they fall into unbelief and disobedience, uh, uh, following after other gods and depending upon other sources, such as the, the rain god Baal, then God's judgment befalls them. When they repent, then he sends a deliverer, his grace, to provide for them and deliver them once again. But uh, the, the, the understanding of the covenant here is that if they 
fall into unbelief and disobedience, they will lose the land. They will lose the land, that beachhead for Yahweh's kingdom. Um, then you get into the period of the monarchy and also the divided kingdoms. And uh, with the northern kingdom, what we see is uh, their faithfulness, their spiritual condition, more of just a ski slope, okay? Just a steady downward trend to 721 where God's judgment comes upon them in the form of the Assyrians. They are taken into captivity and dispersed among the nations, among the Gentiles, okay? So uh, that's the case with the northern kingdom. With the southern kingdom, it's more like a roller coaster, okay? So you're starting up and you go down Solomon some and Rehoboam and uh, you have some upswings such as Hezekiah, Josiah, so forth, but then some that really are plunges like Manasseh, and so it's more like a roller coaster where you know you start up high, but eventually you end down. And in 586, God brings the judgment of the Babylonians, okay, and Nebuchadnezzar. Which brings us then to the exile, okay, and uh, this is clearly God's judgment here. But in the exile, the people are really brought to utter dependence upon God. And there is repentance, there is remorse. God's grace continues for them in the remnant, the remnant of the faithful, uh, the remnant that returns, uh, but also for those who stay in Babylon. God remains faithful to what we call the diaspora, and uh, the Jews will be scattered not only in Mesopotamia, but ultimately in other places like Egypt. Jeremiah was taken there. There is established then a Jewish community in Egypt. And in the Mediterranean world, in Turkey and so forth, now we have this dispersion, this diaspora following the exile. But God brings his people back. And uh, the people now uh, continue in faith, depending on him, and in obedience. And so you can almost see the exile as a kind of retreat to renew that basic training, uh, to teach the people their utter dependence upon him. And uh, uh, that faith that follows then in obedience to his will to follow God's blueprint, his plan, his law. So uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah, this remnant then uh, returns, disciplined, uh, refined, back to that beachhead of Palestine. And uh, um, now they await the coming of the Messiah. And that's really where uh, the Old Testament ends here, awaiting Messiah's coming. And uh, God now will use uh, this beachhead and this people of Judah and the Jews to be the site where Messiah will come, where, if you will, the general arrives 
um, after the, the beachhead has been established now for a Messiah to arrive. And when Jesus comes in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us under the law, he then sends his apostles forth to make disciples of all nations. And uh, the places where the apostles go, first of all, are the synagogues of the diaspora, of the dispersion. And so these are kind of like satellite sites that have already been established for the spread of the gospel, for the announcement of the Messiah. And yet that uh, Messiah's announcement of his coming is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles as well. So that now he can gather unto himself all nations, just as was the plan from the very beginning. Uh, the, the promise to, to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob, to David, the gathering in of all the nations. And that is what the prophets foretold. And as he does so, in the great irony of history, he restores uh, the ten lost tribes that had been dispersed among the Gentiles. They now are gathered back into the kingdom of God. The new Israel, the church, which is all believers in Christ. And they are, they are gathered in as Gentiles. So uh, this is essentially the story of the Old Testament. And we see over and over again this cycle. But it's a cycle that continues. And it continues in our lives, in your life, in my life as well. Continues in the ministries that we carry out, that you will be carrying out, and uh, the work that you do. And it's essentially the ministry of the message of law and gospel, of calling, uh, speaking forth God's judgment upon sin, disobedience, unbelief, calling for repentance, but then announcing the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ so that God's people might now walk in newness of life, walking in faith, and living according to God's will as he has revealed it to us. Uh, so there's great continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's why I hope that you have found great value in our time together, that it hasn't just been um, getting all the facts and figures and the uh, persons and events in your head so that you can uh, play the game show well and, and you know, answer the questions, uh, trivia questions, but that you actually understand God's plan in history, his plan of salvation, his salvation history, and it all finds its culmination and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ.